Welcome to the Yes Collective podcast. If you're hearing this, then you are not on our private members-only podcast feed where we have our public episodes like this one, but tons more amazing mental wellness content, including our therapist circles, on-the-go articles, parent-focused meditations, and special episodes you won't want to miss. So head on over to yescollective.co, become a supporting member, and we'll get you your own private podcast feed today. And honestly, the more I really loved myself for who I was, which is healing that trauma, it was much easier and it is much easier for me to love them for who they are. Dr. Frank Anderson is a sort of superhero in the field of mental health. He's a psychiatrist, author, speaker, and trauma specialist. He did his residency in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, worked with Bezel van der Kolk at the Trauma Center, is the former director of the Foundation for Self-Leadership, a senior trainer of internal family systems therapy, and is an advisor to the International Association of Trauma Professionals. He's also a father of two boys and is an expert on internal family systems and parenting. Okay, so that's a lot, but I can boil it all down to this. There is no better expert than Dr. Anderson to help us kick off Cycle Breaking Month. His entire career has been dedicated to breaking patterns of trauma, neglect, and emotional wounds. And he doesn't just do this in his day job. He's a father of two boys who brings all of his training, wisdom, and compassion home to practice what he preaches. In this episode, we talk about the groundbreaking and mind-blowing mental health therapy called Internal Family Systems. We talk about trauma, we talk about breaking cycles, parenting through your true self, and we even touch on psychedelics. This is one of the best conversations we've had to date on the Yes Collective podcast. So without further ado, here's the wise and wonderful Dr. Frank Anderson. Before we get into internal family systems and its role with parenting and trauma, I'm first interested, what led you to devote your life to mental health and wellness in general? That's a really great question, Justin. Um, and that is really, I'm steeped in this as I'm writing this memoir right yeah. now. So that's been, you know, <laughs> right. fully aligned um, with that question. So interestingly enough, I, I grew up in the Midwest um, in a pretty conservative, you know, Midwestern town, if you will, and um, always loved kids, always thought I was going to be a pediatrician. You know, my dad was a pharmacist and we've always surrounded by mental, by medical stuff. So I kind of thought I'd be a pharmacist like my dad, but then I wanted to be a doctor. Of course, I'm going to be a pediatrician. Like that was my thing. And then Probably when I was a freshman in college, maybe my sister, my youngest sister, um, had her first psychotic break. So it was one of these kind of shocking events, shocking moments at the, at the dinner table where she was kind of really freaking out. And oh my God, my heart totally broke for her in that moment. And for me, it was kind of like, I have to save my sister. I'm devoting my life to mental health. And that really changed the course of my career, honestly. Was that clear to you at the time that like, this is why you're going into uh, mental health or did it, did it evolve for you? Like, oh, that, that, that was the reason. Well, no, I mean, it, that was a moment for me. It was clearly a moment. It's like, oh my God, the pain that I saw her in, the pain that it activated in me, it was like, I have to do something here. I have to save her. So that is really how the journey started, right? But of course it evolved because what ended up happening, you know, I got into medical school, switched from pediatrics to psychiatry. And then in my residency program at Harvard, which is, you know, out in Boston, it's very analytically oriented and they really want everybody to go into your own psychotherapy, right? It's, it's a big thing here. So lo and behold, as soon as I got into my own psychotherapy, I was like, oh, maybe this isn't really about my sister after all, even though, of course, I love her and she's doing wonderfully today. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. She's doing great. She has two kids and a husband. But when I got into my own therapy, then I started learning about my own trauma history. 
So then it was like, oh, oh, it started out with my sister, you know, really wanting to save her and really ended up being about myself also, not only, right, also. And I've spent my whole life healing. I've devoted my life to being a trauma specialist and a trauma expert. And I did, I've done a lot of work, I will say that. And now my mission is to help the world heal from trauma, honestly. Mm. That's what I'm devoted to in this way. I'll say one other piece, Justin, that is related to the whole parenting issue. So I had done a lot of work. I had come out as gay. I met an incredible man. We decided to have kids. Always my, it was always my goal anyways, right? And then when we had our first son, my, my early pre-verbal traumas started getting activated in me. And I was like, holy crap, I thought I had healed everything. <laughs> I, thought I, was, I thought I was, quote, healed, right? And a whole other layer of stuff got activated as a parent, right? Mm. Which oh, is so true. really what drove me into IFS and how I kind of became, you know, really embedded in IFS therapy. So um, it's oh, a wow. journey, right? Personal, yeah. very personal, and and related to our family and what gets stirred up in us, right? Yeah. Oh well, I so identify with this this arc. Um, everything that I've done related to mental and emotional health over the past five or six years, I've gone into and I've said I'm here on behalf of Maxwell Project, our childhood cancer a nonprofit. I I yeah. want to help develop programs. I'm working with a psychologist, da da da, and and like every single time, every single thing I've ever done, therapy, uh, trainings, I mean, every time I come in with this and it's like almost immediate that it's like, no, 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 you need to do this work. So I really identify with, with, with that. Um, and uh, yeah, so I didn't realize that the pathway into IFS for you was parenting. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Hundred percent. So you know, you know, went into the field of psychiatry to save my sister. Realized I had my own trauma history. Always in therapy myself, and really, it was this. You know, and I can remember this. Um, I talk a lot in my parenting curriculum around the way we, the expectations we have as parents. Like, what is your expectation? What are you hoping for? Right? And we all have these huge expectations. It's going to be different. I'm going to do it different than my parents. I'm going to do what my parents did because it was so wonderful. So we all have these expectations of what we think the parenting journey is going to be about. Mm -hmm. And I was totally like, oh, my God, I'm going to have kids and I'm going to give them love. Everything's going to be amazing. Like that's right. It's, it's like I'm going to give love. <laughs> love yeah. is all there is. And yes. I was like, holy crap, not really. Like there's so <laughs> much more than that. Because what ended up happening for me when I had my kids is stuff really like stuff got activated within me. And I started seeing the ways when I was tired, when I was sleep deprived, when I, you know, was working like crazy and exhausted that I started getting reactive and I started losing it, right? Not in any kind of physical way with my kids ever, but verbally, wow, you know, and they're kids. Kids are primitive. Kids are immature. They're supposed to be. Right. That's right. That's but it right. activated immature, primitive behavior in my abusers. So I got reactive to stop that reaction in my kids, if that makes sense. This is a big piece of my parenting curriculum is parents react. They get triggered and they try to stop behavior in their kids because it triggers their wounds. Are you familiar with authentic relating? Have you heard of this this term? Authentic I haven't relating? heard of that. No. So I yeah, I mean, it, it like has come out of nonviolent communication. If, yeah. yeah, and uh, I've taken several trainings in authentic relating, and one of the things that just stuck with me is this idea that whatever you're not comfortable or what what one is not comfortable with in oneself. You're not going to be comfortable with another people and you're going to shut that down. And that is yeah. so true. Oh my gosh. 100%. That's exactly, that is such at the core for me of the whole parenting journey in IFS. And that happened to me. I started seeing behavior in myself that mimicked behavior that, you know, I was the recipient of, 
That's right. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I am not going to repeat this pattern. Like that's where it was like, I will not repeat this. So I dove into IFS like wholeheartedly 1000%. I was like, even though I had done a lot of work on my own trauma history, it enabled me to have a healthy, intimate relationship with a partner. Right. And it was working on healing on that level. And this, you know, having kids really does for anybody who's a parent activates a whole different level of things, right? Yes. Yes. A whole oh. different level of things. So that's when I was like, all right, I am not doing this. I am going in and I dove in, you know, very intensely. I'm still in therapy. I will always be in therapy from my perspective. But when I saw those behaviors in me, I was like, nope, not oh, doing yeah. this. Oh my gosh. All right, so I'm now getting a sense that we need to take a step back and explain a little bit about IFS internal family systems. And so what is what is the easiest way, like just the simplest way that you found to explain IFS just to regular people? Yes. So interestingly enough, uh, I've gotten a lot of these like elevator speeches, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> of all the speaking that I do, right? Yes, but yes. what I'll say is this, the easiest way, honestly, to understand um, IFS is to watch the movie Inside Out. And mm, I was actually, yeah. interestingly enough, did a project with the folks at Pixar around the movie Inside Out, which never really ended up materializing. But this idea that we all have different parts of ourselves. We all have different aspects of our personality. Everybody has them. They're normal. Having parts is not pathological. Okay. This is a view in IFS. Okay. The part of me that likes to exercise, the part of me that likes to travel, the part of me that likes to work, the part of me that loves to be a father. We all have different parts of ourselves. We all have what IFS calls self energy, which is different than parts. I think about it as our core our soul, um, soul is another a brilliant Pixar movie, by the way, right? And, and the accessing this thing that we believe everybody has is inherent wisdom and inherent healing capacity, that you're born with it. It does not need to be created, okay? Everybody has that. What ends up happening because of life experience is we go through overwhelming, difficult life experiences and our parts will take on protective roles to protect the wounds we carry. So parts get extreme because they're trying to protect our pain. So we have parts that protect and we have parts that carry wounds. And what we do in IFS therapy is help people with self-awareness, self-connection, get to know themselves better, get to know their parts Look at every part with a positive intention because every part has a positive intention, which is a huge kind of paradigm shift for oh, people. A huge, right? Huge. And then yes. we have our parts, we heal our parts so they no longer carry the pain and they no longer have to protect. So the, the view of IFS is it's a healing modality for what we've been through in life that's been overwhelming. And I don't know anybody, Justin. Haven't met anybody yet who hasn't had any kind, some form of overwhelming life experience. It, it was such a, a simple revelation. And I, I I'd learned a lot about IFS by the time uh, Richard Schwartz's book came yeah. out this last summer. But the title is just, it's just like, I put it in my pocket and I just, it's like, oh, this is so nice. No bad parts. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's That's so, right. it is so fantastic. And then to begin to like really meditate on, on that, it's like, oh, even, even that part. Yeah. Even that part. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, you know, Richard Schwartz, who is a developer of this model, it's been around for 35 years by now, but it's really gotten popular within the last five years. Like it's just exploded all over because it's a paradigm for living really. And this idea that all parts are welcome, all parts have a positive intention is huge because in mental health, in culture and society, we're always trying to get rid of the bad parts of us or other people, you know, don't say that. Don't drink like that. Don't eat like that. You know, you're not supposed to. Like in this, even suicide, cutting, depression, 
anxiety. It doesn't matter. All of those parts have a positive intention. And I say that specifically. Most people focus on the effect of our parts. Yeah. Drinking too much causes, makes us lose our job, makes us get divorced, makes us yell at our kids. That's the effect of drinking. The intention of drinking is to numb the pain of loneliness and isolation, for example. So I'm always wanting to focus on the intention of the behavior, not the effect. Same thing when parents lose it. Parents lose it all the time. Parents get triggered and we focus on the effect that it has. And believe me, it has an effect on kids for sure, transgenerationally, you know, um, um, creating trauma. But when we, if we want to really help a parent, we look on the intention behind the behavior, which is protecting their pain and vulnerability. Wow. I, it, this is such a, a just relaxing and just internally mm. compassionate view. Mm. One of the things I really, so my, my journey with our nonprofit Maxwell Project into the mental health space was working with psychologists at a children's hospital on mindfulness. And so we did a lot of mindfulness stuff. And, and so in the mindfulness world, there's a lot of self-compassion work, you know, a lot right. of, a lot of stuff about self-compassion. Yeah. And honestly, it never fully clicked for me. It just was like, I, I, I have stuff that I don't have a lot of self-compassion for, or it, it felt like I just couldn't fully get there. I didn't really understand it, but this approach in IFS has really clarified. I, I feel like internally it's like going from kind of a fuzzy picture to going into HD. And it's like, oh, wow, I see what these parts are up to. Oh, my gosh. And I see that, uh, I mean, it's, it's really crystal clear. Their intentions are good. The effect is not good, but the intentions are good. And now I can start to have compassion. And then one of the big uh, aha moments for me was, I think it was reading, it might have been uh, the textbook that you co-wrote with Richard Schwartz. Um, yeah. And, and I think at, is that yes, when yes, 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 yes. And, uh, and there was at one point in, in, in there where uh, I, I think it was a case study and the client was asked to uh, sense in or feel into how old this part was. And yes. that was just a like, oh my gosh. And then as, as I've been incorporating this and then I've been able to do a little bit of this work as well, uh, it, I mean, the compassion just flows because you're like, oh my gosh, this part that I thought was so terrible and, you know, big and scary. Oh my gosh, it's yeah. only five years old, you know? Exactly. Uh, yeah. That's exactly right. That's a huge piece for people too, because some of these more extreme parts, raging, even drinking, cutting, like really, you know, extreme behaviors, they are oftentimes younger parts of us, child parts of us, who have taken in the energy of the environment. So they will take in perpetrator. If you were yelled at when you're a kid, if you were verbally abused, you're going to take in the energy of that perpetrator because you see how effective it is. Mm. And you're going to use it in the, in, your, in the service of protection, right? Mm. And so often these parts look big, menacing, and scary. And exactly what you're saying, Justin, it's so great that you kind of had that awareness yourself is when you get to know them for what they're trying to do, you're like, oh, my God, honey, <laughs> you are five years old. And then you, your heart opens. You're like, you are just trying in the way you know how, in the ways that you learned to protect. And that's where real open-hearted compassion comes from, right? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Oh, thank you so much. So I want to get into the parenting piece on this more specifically. But first, when this podcast comes comes out, we are going to be talking about specifically about breaking cycles, right? So we think one of the most important aspects of conscious parenting and really 
like stepping into a, like a mature, loving, compassionate parenting is breaking cycles. And so this is really for, for us about doing things differently than our parents, but also doing things differently than the larger society that we grew up in. Um, yeah. So I, I just wanted to pause real quick and just ask what you think when you think about breaking cycles or when you think about this, this phrase? Yeah, it's a great, I'm really glad that you're kind of focusing on that because for me, that's a really big deal and it's not easy to break cycles. Okay. It's not easy to break cycles within ourselves based on our history and what we've just unconsciously encoded, but it's also not easy to break cycles in culture, in society either because you really are going against the grain. Let me first talk, if it's okay, about breaking, breaking cycles in culture and society, because this is a, a, a kind of a pet peeve of mine personally. Like there is, a, a, at least in our culture, in my culture with my friends and colleagues, this normalization of losing it. Oh, all parents lose it. Oh, it's normal right? It's almost like when we get together as parents and talk to each other, which we're supporting each other, right? Because everybody's struggling. Like parenting is like the hardest <laughs> job you will ever yes. do, ever, yes. right? Yes, yes. And so I understand supporting each other in this journey because otherwise, how are we going to get through it? But there is this normalization of losing it, which mm. really bothers me personally, mm. because honestly, everybody loses it. And I don't think it's okay. So I have a cycle that I want to break to not normalize losing it, even though I don't want to shame any parent because everybody loses it. That's right. I say the way we break that cycle is if and when I lose it, I need to do my own work because I've lost it because something in me has been triggered, not because it's okay. Mm. All right. I don't want any more books on how children should behave. Mm. I want more and more books on how parents need to heal their own stuff and get out of their children's way. Oh, this okay. is it. This is it. Yes. Right. Well, so yeah, just, just real quick. We, uh, when, we were working on this platform at Yes Collective, formerly the Family Thrive. We were, we included a bunch of stuff around parenting and kids. And it just, as we continue to do this work, it was like, oh, but it, it, it's really all about the parents. It's really yes. all about the parents. Yes, it is. <laughs> parents get in the way all the time. Your expectations for your kids, you're wanting them to do it differently than you did, the the cultural, the family expectations. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, oh my gosh, if my parents ever heard the way my kids talk to me, my parents would yell at me, right? Like the shame we carry when the way our kids behave. There's so many things that get in the way of us getting in the way for our children. Okay. One of the things that I will say, honestly, and I do feel like at least I was, I got this message much quicker than my parents did. Like, right. If I can do it a decade <laughs> earlier, right. I grew up in the Midwest. I, there was no such thing as gay really when I grew up. And it was like, I was supposed to be an act a certain way. And they, my parents wanted me to be an act a certain way. And it wasn't until I was 32 years old that I came out. Right. I wasn't okay with who I am. I got married to a woman. I did what I was supposed to do, what my parents wanted me to do, what culture mm. and society wanted me to do, right? Mm. And I had I have these two boys. They're very volatile, you know, active, you know, really intense boys. And my oldest, and we oh, we move into this very upwardly mobile you know, neighborhood in Boston area with the best school, the fifth best school system in the state because education is so important to me, blah, blah, blah. Neither one of my kids are academic kind of kids. They really mm. are, you mm. know? And I felt so good about, like, I remember my son in seventh grade. I'm like, look, you need to be you. You don't need to be what I want you to be. If school's not your thing, don't do school. You know, he's in a technical high school. He's thriving. And I got rid of all of that 
I want you to go to a really good school because school is the most important thing. And I was able to see him for who he is very early instead of seeing him for who I wanted him to be and pressuring him to be academically, you know, achieving. It's not who this kid is. Can I ask, did, did you have to do some inner work around that to get totally. to that point? <laughs> because yeah. I, I have experienced this myself with our oldest son who is not academically inclined either. And of course I, you know, I, I've spent most of my life in academia. So yeah. it, it was, it's a lot of work. And one of the yeah. things that, that came up for me and that is still this, this practice uh, is can I tap into the just uncomplicated unconditional love that i have for it. this child exactly and right. then everything just <laughs> opens exactly up right. yeah but it 100%. but it was doing a lot of inner work for me right. oh my right. gosh i wanted them to be successful i wanted that was for me that was my parts imposing on them i wanted them to be successful so in my mind success is academia like you don't get into harvard without academic success right so I, that was about my parts and what I imposed. And I still want them to be successful, but not that way if it's not their way. Same mm, thing. It's like, mm. and when I had that awareness of like, oh my goodness, I was never who my parents wanted me to be. And I had to move halfway across the country in order to be me. And I do not want that for my son. So for me, the big aha moment was, I need to embrace and see and love him for who he is. He's obsessed with cars. Like he lives, breathes cars. I'm like totally embracing that 100%. Bike, you know, mountain biking, motorcycles, race cars. That's who this kid is. And I can embrace that fully now. And guess what? He's going to have a much greater chance of being successful. Because it's about mm. embracing him. Him, He said to me the other day, he's a senior, he's looking into colleges. He's like, well, and you'll let me do whatever I want because you want me to be happy, right? And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, he got it. I'm like, yes, honey, that's exactly right. You know, and it took me a lot to get there, you mm. know, with my fears uh, and worries. Oh, right? wow. Yes, it took I, me I a lot, but I thought he holds it. He holds he can do whatever he wants because yeah. I'm giving him that space to let him be who he was. So that was corrective for me. That's breaking oh. a cycle right yeah. there. And it's so important to, to, to hear that, like you had to do the work around this. It didn't just come naturally. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, you weren't born with like a Buddha you know, <laughs> approach <laughs> to uh, parenting. And yeah, it's, it's so like, it's so great to know. I just had this flash, you know, in as an undergrad, I remember this aha moment because I kept hearing peers who were like, Oh, I didn't study that hard. I didn't work that hard. And yeah. they would get good grades. And then I started yeah. to slowly see that they were actually working really hard. They just didn't want anyone yeah. to know. And you so it's it. like, so good to know, like, you know what, this stuff takes work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I don't care. You know, this is, this one of the things I say when I teach this parenting curriculum, because, you know, people see me as a trauma expert. I've written books. I speak on trauma all the time. I'm like, Hello, people. I am not a parenting expert. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> like, oh my God, this is the hardest job I've ever had. I want to help people learn what I've learned, but I wouldn't call myself a parenting expert. I would call, I'm working really hard on my own stuff so that I can help my kids be who they are. Right. But expert, I don't see that. Right. I'm I'm skeptical of people who call themselves parenting experts yeah. because what yeah. I get is like a lot of behavioral tips and tricks and it's like yes yeah. you can train you can train a dog to 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 do a million different things but right. like parenting you know I, I for me is a yeah. spiritual practice i mean a a you know secular but but like yeah. it it is it is not training a dog i don't want this child to just jump jump through hoops like i'm exactly. trying to to raise this authentic human being to flourish that's a whole different ball game 
And you know what I've also experienced along those lines, Justin, I, Justin, I really agree with you. Um, we as parents get so, so I was like, just love and everything will be fine. Oh, darn it. I have to teach too. This is what the big bummer for me was. Mm, oh, I can't mm, just love. Yes. I need to teach how to be in the world, how to, yeah. all this stuff, morals, whatever it is. And I believe we get overzealous around teaching. We get so, you know, agenda-driven around having our kids behave, having them be included. And teaching for me becomes overdone because then it's about managing kids' behavior. It's about managing outcome and all this kind of stuff. And interestingly enough, what I have grown to learn, and I, my son said that this to me recently, which just reinforced, is kids learn most by observing our behavior. They mm. don't learn yeah. from what we tell them they should do <laughs> or tell them how they should act. They learn by observation mm. and experience. My son said to me the other day, which was, I've never had a discussion with him like this ever, but he just was observing me and he said, you know, I kind of get why you're successful. He's like, you don't spend a lot of money. You save a lot of money and you work really hard on what you love doing. Like, oh, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> like, oh, where did you get that, honey? Like, how, like, who told you that? That's the best, that's, you know, and it was all through observation. It was all through observation. Do you know what I mean? That he was just watching me. That's right. And watching the way I conducted my life. And I'm always saying, and you could do that too. Like, this is, and you could do that too. And you, I, I have 100% faith and your ability to do exactly that your way. Like I'm always putting it back to him, putting it back to him yeah. as this is entirely possible for you, honey. So I just love that. I think they do learn much more through observation than by what we think we need to tell them. Do you think your, 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 your work and your experience with IFS has given you more confidence in parenting in this way. And what I'm thinking about is like really truly getting to connect with and understand your own self, your own true self and getting to see that when, when, when parts feel safe and when they feel secure and when they feel seen and heard that they really like start to row in the same direction and there starts to be harmony. And so for me, it like, it strikes me that like IFS builds a certain trust that these kids are going to be okay if they have that same security and yeah. safety and you don't have to be so like anxious, like, Oh my gosh, if they don't get into the top school and if they don't yeah. do this and that, yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it really, for me, and this is my personal journey, it was really clearing the parts of me that got triggered by my kids, that reacted to them when I would lose it or, you know, yeah, when I would lose it, that was all about my being treated badly for who I was by people who were perpetrating me, right? And so the more... I healed the parts of me that felt less than and unloved, bad for who I was. The more I healed that, the more those parts of me that were reacting to my kids no longer needed to react to them. And honestly, the more I really loved myself for who I was, which is healing that trauma, it was much easier and it is much easier for me to love them for who they are. So the reactivity is not necessary. We have reasonable conversations like, wow, do you think that was smart to do that? Like, how did that feel when you kind of shot the BB gun and busted the window? Right. For example, as opposed to, oh, my God, you know how much this is going to cost me now that you broke this window with a BB gun. Right. Like. I don't have to stop anything anymore, you know? And even my younger, my youngest son, who's on the spectrum, 
I got this. There's so much, even in the, you know, there's so much around special needs kids, you know, behavioral, ABA, all this kind of change the behavior, fix the behavior so that the kid fits into the world. I start with the more I healed myself, the more I started saying, you know what? This kid is a hundred percent exactly who he should be in this world. It's the world who needs to change their view of him. He doesn't need to change anything. He's exactly who he needs to be. And so I started shifting my orientation with my youngest son. I'm like, look, you have a problem if he's head he's he's banging his head in the CVS. That's your problem, not his problem. He's overwhelmed by this environment and he's trying to regulate an overwhelming brain. Mm -hmm. So if you have a problem with that, sorry, it's your problem. It's not his problem. Do you know what I mean? So I started seeing it differently. Like these kids are not wrong for not fitting into the world. The world is wrong for not seeing these kids for who they are. Mm -hmm. So I want to help him maneuver in the world. Don't get me wrong. You know, but... But there's been so much pressure to be something that you're not. And I think if we feel it inside, we're going to project that on our kids. Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking now about first steps. So I'm imagining parents listening to this who have never heard of IFS or maybe they've heard us mention it a few times in the past on a podcast. But what are some first steps parents can take in breaking these cycles? So uh, we'll talk a little bit more about IFS in a moment. But I mean, just generally, are there just some some simple, small steps? Yeah, a couple things that come to mind for me. First, I mean, repair is everything, okay? Yes, people will lose it. No, I don't want to normalize it as parents. Yes, you'll lose it. And repair is everything. But the first thing I say, the first step is when it's intense, it's yours. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. When it's intense, it's yours. If you're yelling, if you're pissed off, if you're whatever, it's about you, not about them. So it's that awareness of, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, I could kill you. I'm so mad. You know, oh, my God, what's up? Be aware of it. When it's intense, it's yours. Remove yourself. That's the second thing. People are always feeling like they need to stay with the kid. Get out. You're triggered. Remove yourself. Okay. Even if the kids are young, you put them in the playpen, you put them in the crib, and you leave. If they're older, Put yourself in the, you know, they're going to be fine if they're six or seven or eight watching TV while you go into the bedroom and lock that door, you know, get away and recover. So when it's intense, it's yours. Get away, recover. And here's the thing I say, don't try to repair until you feel compassion for your child. Because if you sit in this, he should have never done this, and he, she was wrong, and she shouldn't hit her sister, you have not recovered. You're still agenda-driven, okay? So don't reconnect until you feel compassion for that kid with whatever they did, okay? And yes, the non-triggered parent should intervene as much as possible because the non I have this triggering agreement. With a parent, (laughs) the non triggered parent jumps in, the triggered parent leaves, recovers, and then the non triggered, the non triggered parent can say, Hey, daddy shouldn't have yelled at you. That was wrong. What were you doing? You know, they can have a discussion. You know, oh, you and your sister were fighting. You know, we don't like when you guys fight, but he shouldn't have yelled at you. You know, so the non triggered parent could have a reasonable discussion. When the triggered parent recovers, has compassion, then they come back, first apologize. I am so sorry I shouldn't have yelled. Tell me what was going on for you. Mm. You've got to repair first before you're ever able to reconnect with that kid because they have been wounded by your behavior. So I heard you talk about this trigger agreement uh, with your husband and 
I've yeah, I I heard this on another podcast, and so yeah. we started doing that, and it it's Would amazing. You? It's su- it's such a it's it's like so cool because it's like oh, I don't need to like transform in this moment. I don't need to all of a sudden yeah. you know do some parts work and you know da, da, yeah. but it, it, <laughs> like I I can just turn to my partner and say, can you please. Yes. take this one and let me recover. And, and yeah. yeah, it's, I mean, it's so simple, but it's such a big deal. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like when my husband loses it, like we lose it over different things, of course. Right. Yeah. When he loses it, like we can be sitting at the kitchen table and he gets reactive over something. My kids and I look at each other and they roll their eyes. Like, they're like, there goes, <laughs> there goes daddy again. It's so obvious when you're calm and somebody else loses it. Okay. It's so obvious. The kids know it and the non-triggered parent knows it. That's right. It's so obvious, but you get self-righteous when you're triggered. You think you're right. You have this agenda. You want to get your point across and everybody knows except you that you're in a triggered space. So my, you know, I, I want parents to get to the point because when my husband steps in, like that's one thing, Justin, to say, all right, I'm out of here, take over. There's at least enough self-awareness. Okay, something's going on. Too <laughs> right? yeah. Sometimes when you're feeling really self-righteous, you want the non-triggered parent to jump and say, hey, let me jump in here. I want you to take a break. That's much harder, but it's super important. And you have to, the parents together, if you have a co-parenting situation, have to have enough trust in your partner Yeah, that I trust when you see me edgy, you jump in and stop me. And then him and I now, it's like he jumps in, I just leave. Yeah. Even if I'm not aware of my trigger. Yeah. Right. So the non-triggered parent jumps in and intervenes because for me, the less time kids get a triggered parent, the less potential for wounding there is for them. Yeah. Yeah. And you made this explicit agreement and talked about it beforehand when neither of you were triggered. And so you can like that, that was, that was the key for us because in the moment, yeah, it's like, no, 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 I'm righteous. Like I'm right here. And (laughs) you know what you just did? You cannot have a kid who acts like that in this world. You really get in your self-righteous state. And that is about your history in some way. And so, yeah, it's really important to be able to step away, trust your partner to jump in and you leave and then do the repair. You know, like Bessel van der Kolk, who's a, you know, colleague and friend of mine who wrote The Body Keeps a Score. It's like the biggest trauma book always has said to me, and I've known him since 1992. He said, the event is not as important as the aftermath. The aftermath is much more important in trauma is how you repair. Are you alone? Are you isolated? Are you shamed and blamed? Or is there authentic connection and repair? The event is not as important as the aftermath. That feels really that that feels so good as a parent to hear because yeah. that that trigger that blow up you know, that's like, you know, for at least up to this moment, it feels like it's just, it's going to happen at some point, you know? And so then it's, it's like, okay, okay. I don't need to do a lot of self-shaming. I don't need to beat myself up, but now I have some tools that I can repair. And I have some work to do. It's like, and some work to to do. And I have work to do like the alcoholic scenario is not what I'm talking about here. You don't get drunk every night, mm. abuse your kids and say, oh, honey, I'm so sorry right, the next right. day when you're sober. So repair is really important, but not in an ongoing way if you're not going to do your work, mm. right? Yes. So yes, we really have to be committed to doing our work, you know, and that's important. And yes, we will lose it. I have learned so much more from my children than I've learned from any textbook I've ever taken in my life. Like I I say this thing, and you may have heard this before. I think we get the kids we need, not the kids we want. So we get children who come into our lives, in my view, so that we can learn and grow as human beings. And I have grown so much because of my children. 
And so we need to take advantage of those moments when we lose it to learn. What do I need to learn Mm. here? Yeah. Right. And it's such a mutual relationship. You know, I love it. The apology and repair is huge for kids because children will blame themselves if you don't take responsibility for what you did a hundred percent of the time kids will blame themselves because they have to make sense of what just happened and if you yell at them and you don't take responsibility for that then then i must be bad i must be wrong Mm. and so that repair piece is huge oh thank you for so i i i I'm going to skip some stuff so that we can uh, just have one more little piece on parenting because I have a few other questions. So I I wanted to make sure to read this passage from your recent book, Transcending Trauma, because I I just felt like as a parent, it hit me right in my soul. (laughs) And I was like, okay, other other parents are going to love this as well. So you, you write, my children know whom to ask when they want someone to cook for them, whom to approach when they want to go biking or play on the trampoline, and whom to avoid when they fight with each other. I believe that both of my boys feel safe and secure when they are in connection with me when I'm in self-energy. I also observe that they've had confusing and disorganizing experiences when I lose my temper and become someone totally different to them in those moments. At first, they connect with the reasonable, calm, non-triggered part of their father. It undoubtedly shocks them when an extreme, irrational, and intense part of me takes over one minute i'm the reasonable father they know and love in the next moment i'm triggered and present in a completely different way this must be confusing for them especially if i don't take responsibility for my actions and fail to apologize after i've recovered unfortunately this is the case for many complex trauma survivors the parent doesn't own their peace and the child internalizes it assumes responsibility and tries to make sense of it on their own and so there were two parts to this that I, I, or two phrases that I thought, oh, I I would just love for you to just talk a little bit more. And we've talked about them, but flesh them out even a bit more. One is self-energy. So can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about self-energy as a parent and in these stressful, perhaps triggered moments? Well, interestingly enough, so a couple things about that is we, like I said earlier, everybody has self-energy. It's like our core, our soul, our inner wisdom. Okay. We all have it. Kids have it and parents have it. And different parts of children will attach to different parts of the parent. That's the first thing I talk about. So this is the oh, my sons know who to ask when they want to go biking, who to ask when they want somebody to cook for them, who to ask, you know. So different parts of children attach to different parts of parents. Mm. And when there is a part of a child attaching to my core loving wisdom, my inner soul or self-energy, that forms secure attachment because they are getting what they need from me in that moment. That's a secure attachment, right? There's a lot of talk about attachment theory and all this kind of stuff. For me, parts of kids attached to parts of parents. And then when there's a shift, when I get triggered and I'm in a protective part, my kid loses their safe parent. Mm. It's a loss for them Mm. because they were in connection with that safe parent. And then when I get triggered, it, it's jarring for them because they've, they've lost their, parent, their safe parent in that moment. And so it causes anxiety, it causes fear, it causes shame. And so then the reactive part of me is in connection with a fearful, shamed part of my child. So it creates a different dynamic, which is confusing and scary for them. And so You need to take responsibility for that and have them make sense of it. Like, oh, this was about them. My gut feeling was right. That was scary. It was wrong. So then kids learn to trust themselves because what they felt matches what I say. Hey, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. Then they say, oh, Papa will take responsibility when he does something wrong. And I felt something was weird. Oh, I was right. So kids learn to trust themselves because the feeling of that scary thing 
was actually named as such, and I took responsibility for it. If that doesn't happen, Justin, if I yell at my kid, first of all, they get really confused. Wait a minute. First, I can't, who is this guy? Is he going to change on a dime? I'm going to get scared. And then what kids end up doing, because children need attachment for survival, they disconnect from their feelings in order to re- to connect with the parent. Okay, so then they, they're desperate and they develop these dysfunctional connections and relationships. So my, my kid might say, oh, dad, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Like he's going to try to calm down the angry part of me. Okay, so they disconnect from, hey, wait, this was scary to, oh, my goodness, how could I fix it? So they disconnect from themselves mm-hmm. in order to preserve the attachment, because kids need attachment for survival. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, so they get yeah. attached to an anxious or angry part, uh, an, an anxious part of them gets attached to an angry part of me, and they lose connection to their feelings. So I can imagine a parent listening to this and like, well, okay, how the heck do I access my self energy? Like what? Right. So, so do you, and of, of yeah. course we can't go deep into this and this is, is a, is a really long journey, but is there like one little, one little tip that you can offer now? Here's what I'll say about accessing self energy because it is complicated for people, you know, and oftentimes people don't even know what I mean when I talk about self energy until they experience it or embody it. Mm. This is not a cognitive thing. Self-energy is not cognitive. It's a state of being. It's an experiential place. You cannot will yourself into self-energy. Typically, what I say is this. When you are with the parts of you that are triggered and upset, when you can be with the angry, the furious, the anxious part, and you validate it for its intention, it tends to relax. All parts feel better when they're heard, seen, and known. Mm. So if you could be with your intense parts, they relax and self-energy naturally emerges. Parts block self-energy because they've got a big job they need to do right now. So they tend to block self-energy. That's why I say get out, get out and leave in the moment. If you can be with your parts and validate them, they tend to relax, self-energy emerges. So that's one thing I say to people. When parts relax, self-energy emerges. Everybody has different ways to feel alignment, okay? I tend to feel my best self when I'm exercising or when I'm in nature. Those are two places that I could feel calm, centered, and aligned. So I, when I'm having a bad day, I jump on my Peloton and I do some exercise and it helps me get into self-energy. I'll take a hike. I'll be on nature. My husband is a big meditator. He's more internal than I am. He goes and meditates. It helps him access self-energy. Some people journal. Okay, so people need to figure out what are the ways they can access their calm, centered place. It's important to know what you need to do to get there. And when you're triggered and activated, validate and be with the parts of you and their intention, and then they typically calm down. So that's Mm -hmm. what I typically recommend. Ah, beautiful, beautiful. So in the interest of time, I'm going to move on to just a few final questions that I have some personal interest around. So I I know you've done work around incorporating IFS with psychedelic assisted therapy. And so I'm curious, do you see an application for helping people become better parents here? Eventually, when when these therapies become uh, more widely available? Yeah, so honestly, yes especially when it relates to healing your own trauma. That's what it's about. Like if you have a trauma history and you're recreating your trauma history, I do think there's a role for psychedelics in parenting um, because it does, depending on the psychedelic, right? You're looking at um, MDMA, you're looking at ketamine, you're looking at psilocybin right now. Some people are using ayahuasca or cannabis. MDMA, which is not available yet, shoots people into self-energy, okay? And then you're six to eight hours 
with two therapists doing your work. That could help your parenting journey because you're in self-energy and you're healing your trauma. Mm. Ketamine is a little bit different because it may, it helps your protectors relax. Okay. So if you're really triggered a lot with your kids, yeah, maybe a ketamine session can help your protectors relax. You can get a better sense of what's going on underneath it and hopefully do healing. All of the psychedelics for me are not useful on their own. They're useful in the context of psychotherapy. So yeah. it's get into the state and do your work. And do your so work. So that's where I could see parenting be helpful. There are some people that use it for fun. That's not going to help. You do MDMA, it's ecstasy. You go out to the bars and you have a nice evening. Not the same thing as doing your work. So if you're really struggling with a special needs kid, with a kid who's medically sick, with a kid who's behaviorally triggering the hell out of you, okay, then maybe do your work because something's up for you that you need to get a handle on. So that's the way I would say that with psychedelic medicine. Yeah, yeah. And and when you say trauma, um, at the beginning of our talk, you identified it as an overwhelming experience, right? Yeah. So so I'm imagining that uh, pretty much everyone who's grown up in a modern societal context went through childhood with some overwhelming experiences. And so I, I, I'm not sure that I've ever met a parent who doesn't have some of these wounds. And so right. I've been thinking about it, um, uh, about psychedelic assisted therapy for parents, because it strikes me from what I've read and what I've heard is that it can work quickly to access yeah. some of this stuff. And you I can imagine it. over a couple of short sessions that parents right. could do a lot of work and right. then come back and have a totally new appreciation for their kids, for their family. Yeah. Here's the thing that we say in the psychedelic community, and I really like this. Psychedelic work, like I totally agree, it's, it's like do a piece of work. One, two, three sessions. It's not ongoing, right? You're doing a piece of work, very specific and focused. Here's the thing. It's all about intention when you're talking about psychedelics is what is your intention for this healing journey if your intention is to be a better parent that's very different than the intention which people use these substances all the time for different intention which is getting away from what your avoidance yeah okay so intention is everything in psychedelic medicine mm. it really is i can't stress that enough people use you cannabis all the time to get away. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And you can also use cannabis to access and heal. There are yeah. people doing cannabis assisted psychotherapy. So really intention is everything. And you've got to be honest with yourself about what's my real intention here. Oh my God, this is so stressful. I want to get the hell away. Mm. Mm. Or, Thank oh my God, God, this is so intense. I've got to get to the bottom of this. Yes. Oh, it's beautiful. Beautiful. So the final regular question, and then we have these, these three quick questions at the, at the end. So the final regular one is what new challenging thing are you working on in your own personal growth and development? Like where is the edge for Dr. Frank Anderson? Yeah, well, it's totally right now in this moment is writing this memoir. <laughs> uh, like that is the edge. And I have to tell you, it's so like, so as I've been helping people heal from trauma in the psychotherapy room for many, many years, and I'm moving out, moving into the, moving into the general public, and these are very aligned, that I, I, I have this message, this calling to heal trauma on a larger scale. It's just something that is within me. It's, it's something that's not even mine, Justin. It's larger than me. Yeah. It's larger than any model. And I'm really drawn to help heal on a larger scale. This memoir is very revealing. It's very personal. And it is a story, hopefully, that will show people that trauma can happen and healing can happen. And so this is my growing edge right now. And we're doing all these interviews. I'm working with writing coaches. I'm like, but I am pouring through my life in this very personal, intense way right now. And I know that that's therapeutic for me, even with all the therapy that I've done. I've already am just 
digging into stuff that's very intense. And my hope is that people are going to read this memoir and say, oh, wow, me too. I can heal. Like that is really my hope here is that people will take this book, not as like a cool read as like, yeah, I could do this too. And I hate to ask, but it is uh, is there an estimated publishing date? Um, probably, like if all things go well, within you know ten months. Mm, wow, that's ambitious. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Like it's we're working really hard. I've cut down my private practice. I'm really focusing on this. Yeah. Um, so we're supposed to turn it into the publisher. Um, probably in July, and then within five or six months from then, it'll be out. Beautiful, beautiful. I can't wait for it. And then I would be remiss if I uh, don't ask about Kinergy. Can you say a little bit about Kinergy? So excited about this collaboration. And it's working with um, somebody, one of the people, the founder of Kinergy is Julianne Hoff. And she was on Dancing with the Stars for many years as like one of the pros and also one of the judges in Dancing with the Stars. And one of the things that she said, which I just feel so aligned to, she said, every time I work with somebody on Dancing with the Stars, she's a professional dancer, she's an actress and a singer, people transformed every time we took them through the journey of Dancing with the Stars. They lost 20 pounds, they're healthier than ever, they're happier than ever. She said, I want to bring that thing that we do with Dancing with the Stars, every one of these people to the general public. So she created this movement platform to help people heal because she saw it happen over and over again. And we her, she, her and I got introduced to each other and she had something really powerful there, but I'm helping to bring the trauma-informed arc to the dancing movement thing. So we're making it because people were doing it and getting so overwhelmed because they activated their trauma without knowing what was going on, right? So her intention was very pure, but I love the collaboration now between her and I is being able to make this a safe, boundaried way to work through stuff that's held in your body. And we're going to be releasing what's called Kinergy 2.0 soon so that it's an online dance platform. Um, And people can take classes online and and do this work, you know, through the body in a way that feels safe to them. So I'm super excited about it. It's another way of helping the world heal from trauma through dance and movement, which many people hold trauma in their body. So it's a powerful way to access. And I think we've created a really amazing way to heal. Oh, I can't wait to point parents in that direction. I think that's going to be a really powerful. One of the really fantastic things that I've experienced in doing more body-based work and incorporating yeah. some IFS work is that there's so much that can be accessed that yes. is that you know, no matter how cognitive like I try to, you know, right meditate on it, think about it. And it's like, oh, but this was in the body and now something is moving and shifting. And it's so powerful. I can't wait for that to come out. A lot of trauma healing is what we call a bottom-up process, Mm. not top-down. Top-down is cognitive, emotional, physical, right? Bottom-up is physical, emotional, cognitive. So a lot of trauma healing is a bottom-up process. And Kinergy is one of one way to access from the bottom up. So we have three questions that we ask every guest at the end uh, really quick. And so the first one is if you could put a big post-it note on every parent's fridge tomorrow morning, what would it say? When it's intense, it's yours. A hundred percent. Like that was an easy, I'm like, when it's intense, it's yours. Like that is so easy. That's what I would post, put a post-it note oh, on. Like, that would prevent so much transgenerational trauma. Breaking cycles. Yes. Is there a recent quote that had, that changed the way you think or feel a recent quote that you read or heard? Yeah. It's interesting. And I just, I put this in my most recent newsletter that just came out a couple days ago and it was um, Ariana Huffington's quote. And I can't remember the whole thing, but what she said is resilience is the word of the decade. Mm-hmm. And I really, I mean, she's got a longer quote, so I can't really remember it totally, but I really think 
for all that we've been through in these last couple of years with this pandemic, I think the whole world has been traumatized. And I think we are all fatigued right now. And we're in like just this very difficult space. And how do we move on? And resilience is the word of the day. She said, not all, she always comes up with a word of the day. She's like a word of the year. I'm sorry. Every year in January, she comes up with a word of the year. She said, it's a word of the decade. And I really agree with that that resilience, how do we get through difficulties? Because we have all been challenged so enormously. So it's about resilience and getting through and working through. So that's what Mm, comes to mind for me. Beautiful, thank you. And then the final one is, what is your favorite thing about kids? Oh, their pure innocence and their ability to be in the moment. Ah, yes. That's what I would say. Yeah, we love to ask this question at the end because, you know, parenting can be such a grind and it's like, oh, you know, kids. And it's so wonderful to take a step back and and just appreciate what's what's wonderful about kids. And so their innocence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Anderson. This was so this was just eye opening and thought provoking. And uh, it's just such a gift and such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me and for doing what you're doing to spread the word. So I appreciate all of that, too. You're part of what we need to be doing to change the conversation. So thank you for the work that you're doing, too. And thank you for having me on. Hey, if you like what we're doing here at Yes Collective Podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Share it with other parents in your life and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Yes Collective is a mental health movement for all parents. So let's spread the love.